morning. How are y'all doing today? Awesome. I know we're still doing some greeting here in the building, so those of you that are joining us online, good morning. So, <laughs> hey, uh, if this is your first time joining us here at Hosanna Christian Fellowship in our room, or if you're joining us online for the first time, we want to say welcome to all of you. We're so glad you're here to worship with us here at Hosanna Christian Fellowship. For those of you that are new and may not know, I am Pastor Nathan, and we're going to be looking at 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 through 13 this morning, and we're going to be celebrating communion together. So um, if you didn't get any communion cups, um, we'll have the elders come through and, and raise your hand. You should have gotten one out in the foyer. If you're at home, this would be a great opportunity to go get your communion elements ready, and we'll be taking communion at the tail end of the study. But this morning, what we're going to be talking about is really the bottom line of John's letter. You know, if you've ever been in business or been to a doctor or tried to buy a car, you may have experienced being in those moments where after you see all the numbers and sales figures or after you get all the really technical medical descriptions or you get through the whole sales pitch, you find yourself coming to the moment of saying, okay, what's the bottom line? What's the point? What's the prognosis, Doc? What is this all about? Well, today in the verses we're looking at in 1 John chapter 5, John gives us the bottom line of this entire letter. You know, after introducing throughout this letter concepts and topics that were very important, and then revisiting those concepts and topics over and over again, kind of like in in ever-deepening circles, he brings us to the very point of this entire letter. There is a philosophical term that is used in the philosophy world called the irreducible minimum. And this term is a term that refers to the least amount of attributes necessary for something to maintain its function and its identity. For example, think of a tree. If you remove the leaves, is it still a tree? If you remove the branches, is it still a tree? If you remove the trunk, is it still a tree? Some people would say yes. Some people would say no, now it's a stump, right? Um, And and that's the idea of the irreducible minimum. For those who would say, look, uh, you could remove the leaves, you could remove the branches, but, but once you remove the trunk, it's no longer a tree. You would say then the irreducible minimum of a tree being a tree is the trunk. That's the idea of this concept. Well, this morning I wanna look at the question, what is the irreducible minimum of Christianity? What is the most necessary thing in maintaining the function and identity of our faith? Is it the style of worship music in the church? Is it the manner of dress at church? Is it the interior decoration of the church building and what it looks like? Is it agreement on end time scenarios? Pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, half-trib, three-quarter trib, there's so many now. Is it agreement on interpretation of prophecy? Oh, I think this prophecy means this. I think this prophecy means that. Is it the method of baptism? You know, there was a man once named Dwight Eisenhower who was a five-star general and quite possibly the most famous soldier of World War II and became the 34th president of the United States. And in his life, he was routinely faced with making big decisions faced with insane amounts of information. And he said this once, he said, the older I get, the more wisdom I find in the ancient rule of taking first things first. A process which reduces the most complex human problems to a manageable proportion. You know, today we're not only gathered here to uh, be together as the church and to celebrate in communion, but today is the day we also remember 9-11, a tragedy that struck our nation 21 years ago And uh, it's interesting because there are some of you here today and maybe watching online that weren't even born yet when this tragedy struck our nation. But 21 years ago, almost 3,000 died. Over 25,000 were injured when terrorists using hijacked planes flew these planes into the north and south towers of the World Trade Center and the Pentagon with a fourth plane crashing into a field when passengers fought back against the terrorists. And today is a day where the nation remembers the loss and remembers what happened there. But from that time until now, the nation has been asking the question, what is the most necessary thing in maintaining the function 
and identity of our nation? What is the most necessary thing in maintaining the function and identity of us as individuals? What is the most necessary thing in solving the problems of life, preventing tragedies like what happened 21 years ago from happening again? Is it politics? Is it uh, who's in office? What party they're a part of? Is it legislation? The Supreme Court? Is it fixing mass media? Is it fixing social media? Is it shifting the culture one way or the other? You know, the answer John gives, what is the irreducible minimum, the most necessary thing in maintaining the function and identity of our faith? What is the most necessary thing in fixing every problem in every society under every government is simply found in two words, Jesus Christ. That is the irreducible minimum. That is the most necessary and important thing. That is the bottom line. Jesus Christ, him preached, him known, him guiding and leading the lives of his creation. This is what John teaches this morning. This is what we're gonna be looking at this morning, but first, we're gonna take time to worship him and to praise his name to thank him for what he's done in our lives, to thank him for what he's done in our nation. Even when we face difficult times and we think, oh, it's hopeless, it's it's all just going into the fire. God is always working. God is always working in the men's of people and we, his children, we are called to be a part of that work, to carry the light of the gospel into a dark world. And so we wanna praise him for the work he's doing in our lives individually, the lives he's doing in our communities, the work he's doing in our communities, the work he's doing in our nation. And we wanna thank him for protecting us, for keeping us, for guiding us and directing us in all things. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you, God, so much for who you are. Lord, we do take a moment today to remember the tragedy that befell our nation 21 years ago. God, at the time, it was just unthinkable that our nation would be attacked in such a brazen way. But Lord, even in and through that tragedy, God, we saw miracles. We saw the work of God. Lord, of course there will be some who will always ask the question, why wasn't my loved one saved? And Lord, all of those types of things, God, we leave into the counsel of your wisdom. But we still ask, Lord, that we would be able to trust you and move forward in faith. And so God, we ask that you would move in those regards in our lives. We thank you, God, that nothing to that scale has happened since, Lord. Despite the direction of morality in our country, despite the direction of of, of darkness and wickedness, God, Lord, you do preserve. And God, your children are here to be a preservative in this world. And so, Lord, we ask you would continue to work in and through our lives, God, that people would see hope in Jesus Christ. People would see the truth in Jesus Christ that people would see that life is found in Jesus Christ and nothing else. And that, Lord, we, your people, moving forward in this world, growing and living in this world, Lord, would be reminded to not put our hope in politics, to put our hope in who's in office and where they're from and what they're gonna vote for. Lord, we know that you work in and through all of that, God, but the most important thing, the bottom line, is Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, may we be people that are about Jesus Christ, people who love Jesus Christ, people who preach Jesus Christ, people whose lives example Jesus Christ, and that through that, God, people would come to know you, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our Lord and our Savior. God, we worship you now because you are worthy of our worship. We worship you now, God, because you have saved us and we thank you so much for that, and we want you just uh, to know how much we thank you. God, you are the answer to all things. We love you so much. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, we are in 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 through 13. But as I opened with, John, in writing this letter of 1 John, he, he began with a premise, and then he went on to introduce um, topic after topic, and then he kind of circled back and revisited these topics in, in ever deeper ways. And then he gets back to his original premise here in chapter 5, verse 6. But I want to take an opportunity to revisit the premise as he stated it in First John chapter 1, verse 1. He says, What was from the beginning? <clears throat> 
What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that life was revealed. And we have seen it and we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard we also declare to you so that you also, you may also have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And so now in chapter five, verse six, John ends his letter where he begins and gets to the bottom line. First John five, six, Jesus Christ. He is the one who came by water and blood, not by water only, but by water and by blood. And the spirit is the one who testifies because the spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify the spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three are in agreement. If we accept human testimony, God's testimony is greater because it is God's testimony that he has given about his son. The one who believes in the son of God has this testimony within himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony God has given about his son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. The one who has the son has life. The one who does not have the son of God does not have life. I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God, to you you who believe in the name of the son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Now we can outline these verses we're looking at this morning into two sections. You have the testimony regarding God's son, and then you have the test regarding God's son. The first section is, is speaking of God's own testimony about the Son of God, his Son, Jesus Christ, about who he is. It's his threefold witness about Jesus. And then the second section is a test that every single human being must take regarding the Son of God. Now, John is using a courtroom analogy here in these verses, because if you notice through verses 6 through 13, the word testify and the word testimony is written there eight different times. Eight times he uses this word testify or testimony, and that word simply means to bear witness of something based upon direct knowledge. That's what happens when you get called to testify in a court of law. You have direct knowledge of something. We want you to bring your testimony so that we can determine the truth or the error. Now, he's calling three witnesses to the stand here to give testimony about who Jesus is, and he names them the spirit, the water, and the blood. And it's likely that John is doing this because being Jewish, he knew the Old Testament. And the Old Testament said that it was by the mouth of two or three witnesses that every word is established. That if there were two or three witnesses, then you could determine the truth of something. And so I believe that's what John is leaning on here. And basically getting to God's bottom line testimony about Jesus Christ is established by three witnesses. The spirit, the water, and the blood. Now, before we get into what he means by that, I just kind of want to point out that Jesus Christ is the only one in history that God has ever endorsed as the one, the chosen one, the son of God, the savior. Jesus is the only one. Jesus was predicted by the prophets. He was really vindicated by his own miracles, but then he was attested to directly by the father on two specific times, his baptism and his death. And that's what I believe John is referring to here by the water and the blood. The water being his baptism and the blood being his death. Now, there are a few different interpretations of these verses. There's, there's some different takes people have about what the water and the blood means here. But I personally believe that since John's point in this section, he is talking about God giving witness about who Jesus is. I believe that it just makes the most sense that John would be referring to the two specific times we have in Scripture where God did that exact thing, where God himself gave witness to who Jesus was. And so on top of that, if you remember the background of this letter, John is writing to combat um, a group that was infiltrating the church called the Gnostics. And the Gnostics were these people that were coming into the church and starting to teach false doctrine about who Jesus was. And one of the things they said that about Jesus was that he was not the son of God, that he was not God in the flesh, that he was just a really nice guy, 
a cool dude, but ultimately he was just a human. Now, one of the leaders of the Gnostics in the early church, a guy named Serinthus, specifically taught that at Jesus' baptism in the Jordan River, what happened was Jesus, who was only a human, had what's called the Christ consciousness descend upon him. And that's what happened at the baptism. That this Christ consciousness descended upon Jesus, it just kind of floated out of heaven and landed on him. And that's when Jesus became the Christ. That's what this man taught. And so then he went on to teach that Christ had this Christ consciousness throughout his whole life, up until right before his death when the Christ consciousness left him. And he then therefore died on the cross just as a human being and nothing else. And so John is writing this letter to combat that thinking. And basically he's like, nah, (laughs) that's not true. God has given testimony about who Jesus is. God has given testimony that Jesus is the Son, is God incarnate. And it's all wrapped up in this phrase we see throughout John's letter a lot, Son of God. We see that letter through the New Testament a lot, that Jesus is the Son of God. And John's idea here is all wrapped up in this this phrase. Now, in our modern English ears, when we hear the term Son of God, it might land in a certain way that, that I believe is different than how it would land in the culture of the day. When we hear the term Son of God, our natural inclination is to think, oh, biological offspring, right? Son of somebody is is a biological offspring. But in the time and in the culture, especially from the Jewish point of view, the term being son of somebody um, could, could mean, obviously, biological offspring, but it also carried the idea of um, someone being chosen as, as a vessel for an important task. Son of. So if you called someone son of somebody, that could mean that they were a person, not necessarily biological offspring or, or whatnot, but it was referring to that they were a vessel chosen for an important task. It also was used to refer to the idea of um, something being the same as something else in essence and nature. Okay? We see that with uh, Judas. If you guys go back in your Bibles, you see that Judas was called the son of perdition. Does that mean that he had a biological father named Perdition who gave birth to him? Obviously not, right? Obviously not. When Judas was called the son of perdition or destruction, as it might read in modern translations, it's, it's what, what is being um, said there is that Judas was ultimately the same in essence and nature as perdition. And that word perdition simply means spiritual ruin. So, so Judas's nature, his essence, was one of spiritual ruin. That's what it says when he's called the son of perdition. So in Psalms chapter 2, verse 7, um, King David writing, he says, The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. And so in the Old Testament, in, his, in, his, in the line of kings in Israel, The term son of God came to be referred to any king who sat on the throne of Israel rightly, like with God's blessing and endorsement. So kings in in Israel were were referred to at times as sons of God. Again, they were a vessel chosen for an important task. And then, of course, this idea that that the son of God sat on the throne was, was, was known to ultimately culminate in the coming of the promised Messiah, the Son of God, the one sent and of God who would come to fully accomplish all that God had, had meant to accomplish in all his covenants and ruling. And, right? and so, so the kings were referred to as sons of God, and then it ultimately pointed towards the ultimate Son of God who would come and sit on the throne of David. On top of that, we had Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, which is a prophecy about the coming Messiah. And it says, For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders, right? That's in reference to this coming king. But then it goes on to say that he will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish it. 
accomplish this. And so in that prophecy in Isaiah, we see that this idea of son of God being connected to he's going to be called mighty God. So then the term son of God in reference to the coming Messiah didn't mean that he was just biological offspring, but it meant that he was divine. That this child that would be born would be mighty God, that he would be God himself. And so in the New Testament, we see this concept fleshed out. You get it? That's a pun, right? Not a very good one? Right? Nobody got it? Okay. All right. So, um, but in John chapter 1, verse 49, uh, Nathaniel, we see him make a statement where he connects this phrase, son of God, to king on David's throne. In John 1, 49, he says, Rabbi, to Jesus, it says, Rabbi, Nathaniel replied, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. So we see in the New Testament this reference that this title, Son of God, um, the person referred to as Son of God, would be the King of Israel, right? The person that's set on David's throne. But then in John chapter 5, verse 18, we see now the Son of God having a divine implication, meaning that someone was divine. In John 5, 18, it says, this is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. That word equals there means the same, right? So, so they started to try to kill him because he said, God is my father, I am his son. But what did that mean to them? He was making himself equal to God. That's that idea of, of same in essence and same in nature. In John 19, 7, It says, we have a law, the Jews replied to him, and according to that law, he ought to die. Why? Because he made himself the son of God. And then in John 10, 33, the Jews said, basically, we're stoning you because you make yourself God, right? So you go through the gospels, you see that this phrase son of man or son of God referred to a few different things that Jesus was the chosen vessel to sit on the throne of David, but also that he was God He was the same in essence and nature as God. That he wasn't a separate being altogether. He wasn't a separate God altogether, but he was the same in essence and nature as God himself. So John, using this title for Jesus over and over through his writings, um, some 18 times through his gospel and his letters and even in Revelation, is John stating that Jesus was and Jesus is God incarnate. God in the flesh, the promised savior, the atoning sacrifice, the long-awaited king. That Jesus was the same in essence and the same in nature as God the Father and God the Spirit, but different because unlike the Father and the Spirit, he was also fully human at the same time he was fully God. And all of this speaks towards the concepts and the theology of the Trinity, the Godhead, And really that's wrapped up in this phrase that that the Trinity is God existing eternally as three distinct persons in one inseparable essence. And that's why we say God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, right? So all of that wrapped up in this phrase, Son of Man, um, this was attested to by God at Jesus' baptism and at Jesus' death. And I believe this is what John is referring to when he refers to water and blood. If you guys remember the story when Jesus went down to the Jordan River to be baptized by John the Baptist, right? It tells us there that a voice came out of heaven that says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Now, the voice didn't say, this is me in whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved son. So there's a distinction there because Jesus was here on earth while the voice was coming out of heaven, right? And then we also know at the same time that it says the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove. And so we see in the baptism, Jesus' baptism, we see in the water the testimony of the eternal divine nature of Jesus, the son of God. Then in the blood, That's the other witness where we see God, the Father, attesting to the truth of who Jesus was. Now, it wasn't necessarily a verbal speaking, but you remember when Jesus died on the cross, God spoke pretty supernaturally, didn't he? It says that the entire land became dark. It says that there was a great earthquake. 
But the greatest thing God spoke when Jesus died and his blood was shed is that it says the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. Top to bottom. And if you do studies on that, this veil wasn't like some flimsy piece of wet paper, right? The thing was like thick. It was this giant curtain. It was tall. Quite impossible for any person to go up there with a box cutter and, hey, 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 I faked it. And yet from top to bottom, not from bottom to top, it was torn in two. God saying the separation between me and my people is no more. God spoke through those supernatural events. And on top of that, John himself, the one writing this letter, he was there at Jesus' death. He saw the blood of the Son of God drip to the ground as Jesus hung on that cross. He was there and experienced the great earthquake that shook everything. He was there during the darkness. He witnessed himself how God in heaven attested to who this man Jesus was. Matthew even recorded in Matthew 27, 54, it says, when the centurion and those with him who were keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they were terrified and said, truly, this man was the son of God. So, John is saying to his original readers, look, Jesus is not just a man with the Christ consciousness falling upon him. Jesus isn't what the Gnostics are saying he is. He's not just a ghost or a phantom. He's not, you know, and John speaking today is saying to anybody who, who, who denies who Jesus is biblically, he's not what you're saying he is. Jesus was God incarnate. God in the flesh, attested to it as baptism, where we see the Son, where we see the Spirit, where we hear the Father, all three simultaneously. He was attested to at his death, where the blood was shed, the sacrifice was accepted, and then the veil was torn. He came as the Son of God. He died as the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the whole world. And so we have the testimony of the water, we have the testimony of the blood, and we also have the testimony of the Spirit. Again, in verse six, John says, and the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is truth. The Holy Spirit's primary purpose in coming into this world and dwelling in man, amongst his many purposes, I believe is found in John 15, 26. Jesus said, when the counselor comes, the one I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. That is the primary job of the Holy Spirit, to point to Jesus. That is his job. That's what he does in the world before when people aren't saved. It says that he's in the world to, to convict the world of um, um, sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. I forgot the first part, right? Um, Sin, righteousness, and judgment to come, right? To convict the world of sin. You've broken God's law. Righteousness, the standard is Jesus. Look at him. He's the perfect life. That's what it takes to get into ha to heaven. And then righteous uh, judgment to come. And if you don't have Jesus, judgment's gonna come upon you. You need Jesus, right? That's what he's testifying to the world. But in the life of a believer, he's also testifying Jesus in our lives. Constantly pointing the way to Jesus. Constantly pointing to the example of Jesus. Constantly pointing to the hope that's in Jesus. Constantly pointing to the, the answers that are in Jesus. That's what the Holy Spirit is constantly doing in our lives. And so I believe what John is getting at here is, look, the Holy Spirit, who was there at the baptism, who is obviously there at the crucifixion as well, he witnessed all of it, it is that Spirit who comes to dwell within us. And his testimony within us is true. Why? Because he is truth. And so John says these three testify and their testimony is in agreement that Jesus Christ is the son of God. God in the flesh come as a chosen vessel for a very important task, our atonement, our savior, our king. Same in essence and nature as God the Father. Same in essence as nature as God the Spirit, but a distinct different person than the Father and Spirit because he was fully human at the same time. Now verse 10. I'm jumping around here a little bit, so just follow as best you can. John says, the one who believes in the Son of God has this testimony within himself. 
The one who does not believe God has made God a liar, made him God a liar, because he has not believed the testimony that God has given about his son. I believe that when you truly come to know God, you truly come into a, a salvational relationship where Jesus Christ has, has saved you, you've confessed you know, your belief in God, you trust in him, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. I believe it's then you know you've entered into truth. I know many of us have had that experience, and I had that experience. Up until the moment where I said, okay, God, I don't get everything, but I believe you're God, and I believe I'm a sinner, and, and save me. Up until that moment, I was still like, I don't really get everything this book says. I don't understand. But the moment I said, God, I confess my faith in you. Oh, yeah, it makes sense. Wow. <laughs> How can you not get it? It's plain as day. Because the Holy Spirit is now within you, testifying to the truth. And it's such a wonderful relationship to have, right? John 8.32 says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And hallelujah for that. And what that means in our lives today as believers, as the devil is working overtime to pollute the truth and to corrupt the truth and to change the truth, as believers, we have the Holy Spirit within us, and, and we'll have times where we hear something about Jesus, we'll hear something about the gospel, we'll, we'll hear something about the truth of Scripture. And there'll be times where your spirit is like, amen, hallelujah, that is true, that is right, that resonates. Because the Spirit in me is testifying to that truth. And it's the Holy Spirit testifying in your heart about the truth of what you're hearing. Yeah, that's true. That's who he is. That's what he's done. That's what it means. Hallelujah, I receive that. But it also means there'll be times in our lives where we're like, ah, nope, that ain't right. That doesn't feel right. There's something off about that. that that's, that's, that's not who Jesus is. That's not what the Bible says. I've recently had conversations with brothers who, who are like, hey, I heard something and it sounded good and it, it was dressed up nice and, and it sounded really solid, but, but in their own spirit, they started to go, I have a question about it. Can I talk to you? We call that a check in the spirit, right? And we were able to have conversations and, and, and this brother was like, let me go back to scripture. And basically was like, whoa, this thing that, that sounded really good is not true at all. And to that I say, hallelujah, praise God. Now sometimes we could get wrapped up in just kind of putting on the blinders. I don't want to hear truth. You know, and, and we'll allow ourselves to get deceived into things. But if we're seeking truth and reading the word and, and praying for God to reveal, I believe, reveal truth to us, I believe he does that. But jump back to verse nine. John says, if we accept human testimony, God's testimony is greater because it is God's testimony that he has given about his son. You could restate this verse as a question. If you accept the testimony of man with stuff, how come you don't accept the testimony of God about Jesus? Sometimes people say, uh, I'm not a person of faith. I, I, I can't just believe. That's, that's ridiculous. You know, I, I have to see all the evidence. I have to have my eye on it to understand. I, unless I can understand the mechanics of the Trinity and you give me the, the quantum mechanical relation of the atoms and I'm not gonna believe, I can't do that. I'm not a person of blind faith. And to that I said, you certainly are a person of faith. And you exercise blind faith every single day. And incidentally, Christianity is not blind faith. If you take a moment to look into it, look into the evidence, you'll just be bowled over with the evidence that it's true. But people have faith all the time. They believe without seeing all the time. Just ask someone who says that, you know? The last restaurant you went to, you trusted the people that made the food, didn't you? You still ate it. You didn't insist on going into the kitchen and standing over them while they made it. You didn't insist on watching the person carry it to you, make sure they didn't put anything in it. No, you sat in your seat, you trusted, you had faith, they brought the food, you ate it, and you didn't die. Hallelujah, you didn't die, right? <laughs> you had faith that your car would work. You had faith that the brakes would stop you the next time you pushed on them, right? You didn't pull all the wheels off and inspect the calipers and then figure out a camera system while you're in the car. When you push the pedal, you could see the mechanism function. To, you weren't paranoid, oh my gosh, is it gonna stop? No, you had faith. You exercised faith, you trusted. 
Sometimes we end up in a situation where we have to go see a doctor, a medical professional, and hey, I think there's something wrong, and the doctor tests and do all these things. They go, no, you, you got a clean bill of health. Do you walk out of there going, oh, he might be lying to me. I didn't do the test myself, so therefore. We believe the testimony of man all the time about so many things. Why not believe the testimony of God? Why not believe the testimony of God, his promises, his word? Why is it that we can find ourselves so confident that, that this politician or this legislation or this court ruling, um, this, 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 this new book, this new idea, why, why do we find ourselves so confident that all of that, that's gonna solve everything? That's gonna change everything. That's gonna fix all of our problems. If we, if we go here, if we move here, if we stand here, if we do, that's gonna change everything. That's gonna make life better. Now, please don't misunderstand me. All that stuff matters, right? I'm not saying that we can't ever go, well, that politician, uh, nah. That one, okay, better, right? I mean, I'm not saying we check our brains out. I'm not saying that there's times where, where a physical move from one place to another is, is good for your family. I'm not saying that those things are bad. They all have effect on things. They can affect things for both good and bad. But the bottom line to all of it is Jesus. He's the one that can solve everything. When we start to think that all this other stuff is more important than Jesus in solving life's problems, is more important than Jesus when it comes to the, the, the foundation and the existence and the living out of our faith, we're gonna find ourselves in trouble. We're gonna find ourselves in difficult times. The bottom line is Jesus, and especially if you're God's child, you should accept God's testimony about who Jesus is. I mean, you want to affect the world? Get Jesus into people's hearts. You want to fix politics? Get people, get Jesus into people's hearts. You want to fix media? Get Jesus into people's hearts. You want to fix church? Get Jesus in your own heart. No, get Jesus into people's hearts. You want to fix legislation? Get Jesus into people's hearts. You want to have a more effective ministry? Get Jesus into people's hearts. You want to make sure people are ready for the rapture? Whether you think it's pre, mid, post, two-thirds, one-third, a quarter, get Jesus into people's hearts. I've had numerous conversations with people lately who want to argue with me about the rapture. I personally believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. I'm open to being wrong, but that's my current standing on it. There are people who just really sincerely believe in, I'm like, that's great. And they're like, when are you going to warn people because it's mid-trib? And I'm like, you know what? If I get someone saved today, regardless of whether it's pre or mid, they're going to be ready for it. I want to focus on getting people saved today. I want to focus getting Jesus into people's hearts. Because when Jesus changes the lives of people, guess what? It changes the world. And if you want to shake the world for Jesus, get Jesus into people's hearts. When we truly believe the testimony of God about his son, and then when we live in accordance with that as believers, when we live in love, in action, in truth, in confidence, in honesty, the world will be shaken in such a good way. All that other stuff, yeah, it's important. It, 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 it's a part of the process, but it is not the point. It is not the irreducible minimum when it comes to being a Christian. It is not the irreducible minimum when it comes to fixing the problems of the world. It's Jesus Christ. He is the irreducible minimum. What about this? Jesus, what about my marriage? Jesus, what about my kids? Jesus, what about my parents? Jesus, it's Jesus Christ. He's the answer. 
And when God has something to say, you'll notice it's all wrapped up in Jesus anyways. Look at Hebrews 1. Chapter, or chapter one, verses one through three. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The Gnostics were trying to, to, to sell their religious system at the time. To say, no, you guys are missing something. You need our special, our special insight. You need our special knowledge. You can't really know Jesus properly unless you sign up for our seminar. You can't know Jesus properly unless you do it the way our church says to do it. The Gnostics were pushing all of this, their method, their way to approach God, and there are many today doing the same thing. And John says from then until now, I don't think so. Your method is not the right way if it's not biblical, and if it's not based on who Jesus is. It's not about a system. It's not about a method. It's not a man-made plan, idea, or philosophy. It's a person. It's a relationship with God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, the Son of God and the Savior of mankind. And when you have him, you have everything. You have every answer. You have every solution. You have everything you need. This is the testimony of God by his threefold witness. And so now John gets to the test for man. Verse 11, he goes, this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life and this life is in his, his son. The one who has the Son has life, and the one who does not have the Son of God does not have life. I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. You'll notice in those three verses, the word life there is used five different times. Why? Because that's what it's all about. Eternal life. It's about having eternal life. That word life there is referring to a state of happiness, exuberance, energy, vitality. It's not being happy. It's that idea of like being alive, right? It's that idea of, of the excitement of joy, this idea that everything is good. The word in the original language also carries connotations of provision or property. So it's the idea of, of experiencing joy and knowing I have everything I need. Life. It's being in a state of perfect satisfaction and contentment and peace and joy without any sense of loss or lack or worry or fear of not having or fear of missing out. It's a word that speaks about quality of life as well as quantity of life. It's not just being alive. It's not just having a heart beating in, in your chest but really living having an existence full of purpose and meaning and peace and joy. It's not just living now here on earth, it's being alive forever in the presence of the glory of God. And God has given this life to us eternally through Jesus Christ, through him. If you have this Jesus, John is saying, you have eternal life. And all that that word life means now and in the future but if you do not have Jesus Christ, you do not have eternal life and none of what that word life implies. And he says, I've written these things to you who believe in the name of Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. It's interesting because John closed his gospel in a very similar way in John 20, 31. He said, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John wants every person on the planet to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior. Why? So that they will have eternal life as a result. But he also wants every believer to be sure as they go through life as a believer that they possess eternal life in Jesus Christ and to never doubt that. He wants us to keep the faith, to hang in there, to continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. But, but the idea with this faith is it's, it's a faith that has to be your own. It, it can't be someone else's faith. You can't borrow someone else's faith. 
right? The fact that you may have had a mom or a dad or a grandma or a grandpa who was a faith-filled believer, that's not enough to cover you. Oh, they loved Jesus. They went to church. So yeah, I'm good. No, you're not. Your faith has to be your own. You have to have faith in Jesus Christ in order to be saved. It's a personal thing. And that's the test. Do you believe in the name of the Son of God? Do you believe that Jesus is who the Bible says he is? Do you believe that he came to die for your sins as the Bible testifies? Do you believe that he was God in the flesh accomplishing something you could never accomplish on your own, paying the full price of everything you've ever done wrong and everything you ever will do wrong? Do you believe that? Do you believe he died for you and has adopted you into his family and that you are his kid? Because if you don't, you stand in the path of his judgment. And that's not what God wants for you today. Belief in this testimony about Jesus has to be your own. God has given it through the water, through the blood, and through the spirit. It's recorded here in his word. All you gotta do is read it. It's preached by preachers all over the world and has been for hundreds of years. And it's attested to in the heart of every saved believer. Jesus is God's bottom line. He's the answer, the reason, the purpose, and the point of everything. So in a moment, we're gonna celebrate communion together as the body of Christ, which I think is interesting because the two ordinances that we observe as a body of believers here at Hosanna are baptism and communion. The testimony of the water and the blood of who Jesus is and what he's done for me, right? That's, that's what we do, and in communion, we celebrate all that, but before we do, if you do not know Jesus Christ, if you have never come to accept Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as your personal Lord and Savior, if you have never come to that place of saying, Jesus, I believe in you. Please forgive me of my sins and come into my life. If you have never done that, I believe he's calling to you now. I believe he's calling you to believe in his name right now, whether you're in this room or watching online. I believe he is speaking to you. And so I urge you to believe in Jesus Christ for your hope, for your salvation, for your future, and your now. Because he is the answer to everything. As he said, he is the way, the truth, and the life. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for your word. And we thank you, God, for your threefold testimony of who Jesus is. That he wasn't just a man. He's not the brother of Lucifer. He's not the father here in the flesh who abdicated the throne in heaven while he was here on earth. Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man at the same time, is God in the flesh wholly the same in essence and nature, being part of the Godhead, but different from the Father and the Spirit, by nature of the flesh that he clothed himself with, to live among us, to identify with us, to be tempted in every way we are, and then to die our death on the cross, to shed his blood for us that we could find forgiveness, that we could find atonement, that we could be made right with God, our creator. While we're praying with all heads bowed and eyes closed, if you're in this room tonight or if you're online and God is speaking to you now that you need to receive him as your Lord and Savior. And all morning God has been saying, you know who I am. I have revealed myself to you and it is time for you to lay down your life at my feet. I'm not gonna punish you. Quite the opposite, I'm gonna forgive you and welcome you into my family with open arms because I love you. If God has been speaking to you this morning here in this room, while we're all heads bowed and praying, I just want you to raise your hand where you're seated and say, yeah, I wanna receive Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior this morning. I know I need to do that. I've heard the testimony, I've heard the word. God has revealed himself to me and I believe. If that's you in this room this morning, just raise your hand where you're seated and let me pray with you. If you're watching us online, obviously I can't see you, but if you know that you need to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior now, I just want you to, in the chat, whether you're on YouTube or the church online platform, 
to say, I want to receive Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, and our moderators will pray with you. Anybody in this room, Jesus is speaking to your heart this morning. All right, let's pray. Father God, we thank you for what you've done. Lord, we know that there are those that need to receive you this morning. Those that are hearing this message, God, and you have spoken to them, and so I pray, God, that as your spirit draws them to you, Lord, that they would confess their faith in the testimony of who you are and their need for you as their Savior. So for those that want to receive Christ this morning, both here in our room and if you're online, pray with me and say, Jesus, I believe that you are God. I believe you came to this earth. I believe you lived a perfect, sinless life. And I believe you died on the cross in my place for my sin. I ask for forgiveness. I ask to be adopted into your family. I ask that you would come and dwell within me to help me live a life that honors you. I believe, Jesus, you are the bottom line. The most important and necessary thing in all of life. I submit my life to you. I ask that you would be my Lord and my Savior. Teach me your ways. Thank you for loving me so much. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, so communion is something we celebrate as the body to remember the death of Jesus Christ and the price he paid for our sin. And all of you in the room, hopefully you got one of these cups. If you don't have one, please raise your hand nice and tall and we'll have some elders come down to get you cups. They are coming down there. I also leave your hand up until you have the cup. But the cups in the room here, they have uh, two tabs. They have a really thin plastic tab and a thicker one underneath. If you'll pull back the thin one very carefully, it'll reduce or reveal the, the cracker here on the top. You know, when Jesus was in the upper room with his disciples, it tells us that he took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And I believe he wanted us to do that because this, this bread represented his body, right? The bread they had at this meal had no leaven in it. Leaven is what puffs up the bread. And so he was indicating that his life had nothing in it that would puff it up. Leaven was seen as a symbol of sin in the culture. And so he was saying, this body has no sin. It's sinless. It's perfect. My body that is given for you, it's without spot, without blemish, and it's going to be offered on the altar of sacrifice to pay the price for your sin. The entire process of, of his suffering and his beating, the entire process of his scourging and being nailed to the cross, all of it was his body being offered on the altar and taking the full wrath of God against sin, against our sin, against your sin and my sin. It's important to remember this. This is why Jesus came to do what we couldn't do. Not a single one of us could atone for our own sins because we're sinful. It took a perfect sacrifice to satiate the wrath of God against sin. And Jesus came to do that in our place. There was no other way. There was no other method. There was no other savior than Jesus, the son of God, come for us. And without his loving sacrifice, there would be no hope for salvation for any of us. And so it's important to remember that we're all equally guilty in our sin, but because of Jesus, we all equally stand before him as his children. Because he loves you and because he loves me so much, he took that punishment, he took it upon himself, he took that judgment in our place so that we could then by faith be forgiven and become children of God. To be chosen vessels for the Holy Spirit sons of God, if you will, part of his family, in the presence of being a vessel for his love, and then a vessel to outpour that love to a world that desperately needs him. And it's all because we have trusted in him and who he, did, who he is, what he did by faith. 
And it's that faith that has led us to, to be pardoned from the guilt of our sins. To not ever have to worry, to not ever have to go, oh no, am I still God's children? No, you could know that you have eternal life and that you're his. And this moment in communion is us remembering that. Let's partake together. Father, we just thank you for your broken body. And help us to never forget what you did for us and the cost of that. Help us never to forget that our sin was so great it took God himself coming to this earth to pay the price. But God, that's not so that we dwell in how bad we were, Lord, but so that we could then reflect appropriately and remember and embrace the great price you paid for us, that we would be set free. We thank you, Lord, for that. We thank you for your broken body on the altar of sacrifice. We thank you that your sinless, perfect body was given for us. And we love you for it, Lord. When Jesus took the cup, and for those of you in the room, if you pull back the thicker tab very carefully, Jesus had the cup of the wine at that last supper there, and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. And you'll notice he said new covenant, not the old covenant. The old covenant, the old practice was a sacrifice had to be brought every year to cover the sins of the people. And it was all a precursor looking forward to the ultimate sacrifice that would one day permanently take away the sins of all mankind. Because in the old covenant, the sin was still there. We didn't have a new nature, our heart wasn't changed. But when Jesus came and shed his blood on the cross and died and rose again and we put our faith in him, now we are given a new heart, a new nature, a new ability to love God and to serve God in a way we couldn't do before. To stand before God in a place where he looks at us and he doesn't go, hey, I still see the sin, but it's forgiven. He goes, no, the sin isn't there. It's been washed away. That we are made spotless because of the blood of Christ. We are made guiltless because of the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ. And he wanted us to remember that it was in him and through him and because of him that we are washed clean. Because of him, we are born again with a clean record. All sin, every hate, every murder, every horrific thing that, that we've done, God's love will forgive. God's love can forgive. And it's because of that loving sacrifice and our faith in his atonement, we are now able to live each day in the confidence that we have eternal life, in the confidence that we are his, in the confidence that we can say no to sin when sin comes knocking on our door tempting us, confidence of knowing that that's, that's our old nature. We don't have to do that. We could live cleansed. We can live empowered. We can forgive as he forgives. We could love as he loves. We can be as he is. And to never forget that any time we're faced with the challenges of life, Jesus is the answer. Because he was our answer. And he will always be our answer. Father, we thank you so much for your shed blood. And we pray, God, that we would never forget that we are cleansed because of it. Lord, it wasn't just your body being laid on the altar for us, but it was your blood being shed. That, God, we weren't just declared not guilty. The very sin we committed was washed away from the record, never to be brought up again. God, that because of Jesus, we are made holy. Because of Jesus, we are made whole. Because of Jesus, we are forgiven and washed clean. Because of Jesus, our lives are changed. And God, we know that as you get into people's hearts and minds and change their lives, that's how we change the world we live in. And so help us, Lord, as we may be called to get involved in things politically or to get involved in things, um, you know, in the, in the, in the law, passing of laws and all that, as we may be called to get involved in things, Lord, to, to affect culture one way or the other, that we would never forget that Jesus is the priority and the answer. 
that when it comes to church and ministry and service, Jesus is the point in the answer. Because, Lord, we sure weren't saved because of one worship style or another. We weren't saved because of the color of the building or whether it had pews or reclining chairs. Lord, we were saved because you loved us. You died for us. You shed your blood for us. Thank you. Let's partake together. So Father, we close today just asking, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would fill us anew. That we would be empowered to continue to follow you as your children. To live as you're calling us to live, God, because we know, Lord, that if we just lived lives that were radically transformed and changed by you, God, lives that were obedient to you, lives that were in the palm of your hand doing what you're calling us to do, God, wow, Lord, the effect would be incredible. And so, Lord, we confess our sins and our dirty feet day by day, God. Ask that you continue to to wash us clean of those things. But, Lord, never let us forget. Never let us lose confidence in the truth, the fact. That because we know you, we have eternal life. Let us live in that truth every day, God. We love you so much. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, God bless you guys. Let's worship.